we are going to talk about pride. And the title of my message in the problem of pride, part one, it always ends poorly. It always ends poorly. So it is June, and this is the month where our country and the West, by and large, celebrates self. Paul the Apostle warned Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus in the first century, that in the last days there will come times of great difficulty, for men will be lovers of self. They will be boastful, proud, and arrogant. If you want any further proof that we are close to the return of Jesus Christ, turn on the television set for about 15 seconds. Scroll social media, listen to a celebrity pop singer, attend a concert, or watch a Netflix documentary. This is our world, and we're going to talk about it. Sound good? I'm so glad that you said yes, but even if you had said yes, I was still gonna talk about it. If you, even if you had said no, I was gonna talk about it. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 14 as well, and if you don't have paper notes or if you're watching online, check out waterschurch.guide. It looks like that. Or if you're, you've come late and you don't have the message notes, that's all right, and you click on today's message, it will look like that. And we're gonna talk about Isaiah chapter 14. Stand at every location for the reading of God's word. Here's what it says, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low. You said in your heart, always understand that this comes from our hearts. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But, everybody say but. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, and who did not let his prisoners go home? All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have slain your people. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your voice. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Help us, O oh God, to have ears to hear, hearts to receive, and minds that are ready to be renewed in the knowledge of Jesus. And help us, O oh Father, as we pray every time we're together to see Jesus. Him and him only. In his mighty name we pray. Everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. If you are a fan of the deep end, nothing that I say will be news to you. If you are not a fan of the deep end, what's wrong with you? You're missing it, okay. And I don't frankly know how you're gonna get to heaven, to be honest with you. But we're gonna talk about pride because our world is talking about pride. I wanna think about the madness that we're in, the madness that we're in. The month of May ends on the last Monday with Memorial Day. A day where we memorialize the people who shed their blood to secure our freedoms. The people 
who stopped slavery in the South, Nazis in Normandy, communism in Korea. Their bodies were shot, stabbed, knived, blown up, exploded, fell out of the air, and otherwise greatly mistreated, and sometimes found no burial so that we could barbecue. And then in July, there's another day where we remember the signing of a document, the Declaration of Independence, signed July 4, 1776 in Philadelphia at Independence Hall, signed by 55, some say 56, men who decided that people deserve to live free, that every man was made in the image of God, every woman was made in the image of God, and though our country has struggled at oftentimes to live up to the standards and the ideals of that document, we know that we have to suffer and try hard to live up to it because that is a value that comes not from our hearts, it comes from the heart of God. And those 55 and 56 men who signed that document, many of us are not aware of this, suffered terribly the moment they signed their name to that document. Many of them left houses, lost houses, lost homes, saw their children murdered, saw their properties destroyed. Some of them lost businesses. One of them was a merchant seaman. He lost every single ship. It was down by the British Navy. And, and some had been um, living as refugees for the entire Revolutionary War, and many of them died penniless just to make sure that you and I could barbecue again. And between those two great days that, that set our country apart with a memorial to sacrifice and selflessness and giving up oneself for others, modern America has turned the 30 days between them into a narcissistic exposition of the human endeavor of confused sexuality. This is our world. And we've got to talk about it. If you're here for the first time, I make no apologies. You came to the right church. Some Christians and pastors who I've met with wonder why I talk about these things from the pulpit. I literally did have a conversation with pastors in this community last year. They said, no, that's not kingdom business. Oh, yes, it is. If our world is talking about it, preachers have got to talk about it. For heaven's sakes, Elon Musk, who does not even know Jesus, is more bold than pastors in the pulpits of America. And it's time for the church to speak up and speak out because we have got a divine appointment from heaven to bear witness to his truth. It's not my idea. It's not my philosophy. It's God's. So if the world talks about it at Waters Church, we'll talk about it. And if you're in this building or one of our locations and you're already offended, quick reminder, you came to see us. We didn't come to see you. And this is a Christian church. What did you expect? This is not a church where we water down scripture to appease itching, tingling ears. We are not a mainline church on the main street of United States countries and cities and towns. 
that are beholden to the Wall Street money of, of, of the Episcopalians or the liberal philosophies of the United Methodists. We are a Christian church devoted to Jesus Christ. He's King, he's Lord, he's God, he's in charge. We're not a Catholic church that's baptized in sacraments and ritual. We're not a feel-good, seeker-sensitive church trying to attract crowds and sell religious goods. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to be hated and rejected, and we're supposed to stand for what he died for. And we will. And then some of you are struggling in the area of sexuality, and your sin is serious, and it's an offense to a holy and righteous God. And you need to repent, as we all do. Raise your hand if you're a repenting person. That's me, my hand's up. I'm wrong, he's right. That's where a relationship with God starts. It doesn't start with feeling. It doesn't start with you. It starts with him. And it offends and it hurts and it cuts. But ultimately it cuts only to heal. So let's talk about the problem with pride. It always ends poorly. Um, how we got here, number one in your notes, write this down, a coordinated agenda. This is not a mistaken happenstance. This is not human, the human experience just molding itself into what you see today. This confusion was, this confusion was programmed. This was assigned. How we got here was strategically positioned two people that you need to know of. Harry Hay, we'll put them up here on the screen. Harry Hay on the left, and on the right is Terry Bean. These are two white men, which at some point America is gonna wake up and realize that this whole movement is just an attempt for white people to claim minority status. Harry Hay was the founder of the now sacred ideology that sexuality was a struggle for human rights, civil liberties. He was a communist, and he framed, was the first to frame the homosexual agenda as a struggle for civil liberties in the 1940s. He marched and stood for an organization called NAMBLA. NAMBLA stands for North, I kid you not, North American Man-Boy Love Association. I don't think I need to explain much more than that. He held dear, near and dear to this philosophy until the early 80s and the pride movement decided that he was inconvenient to be associated with, but he still stands for it to this day. Always ask yourself, what does the plus stand for in the LGBTQIA 2S plus? How many letters are they going to abduct from the alphabet before we say something? The person to the right is Terry Bean. Terry Bean is the founder of the most profitable uh, uh, political organization in America, it's called the Human Rights Campaign. Every time you see a bumper sticker with a little equal sign on it, that's what the Human Rights Campaign is. It is the most powerful pro-LGBTQIA uh, lobbying organization in America. In 2014, Terry Bean was arrested and charged with the rape of a minor, a 14-year-old boy. His charges were dropped and the minor disappeared after he paid $200,000 in hush money to keep it quiet. These are the people who founded and started this movement. Please do not be fooled at the glamorous facade that Hollywood and the media and our president put on this movement. In the 1960s, America, you can take that down, America uh, experienced a revolution, although it was not a, 
a progressive revolution. It was a regressive revolution. It's called the sexual revolution. Revolutions introduce something new. This one introduced something old, sexual deviancy. What everybody considers progress is actually regress, for ancient cultures have always held to these standards. The ancient Greeks believed that homosexual activity between a man and a boy was a rite of passage. It was a way of coming of age. The ancient Romans, where the father of the house was literally in charge of the rule of law in his home, had the right to sodomize his slaves, even his own children, and other young people within his community at free will. The Persians, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and other ancient cultures all practiced and accepted these practices. Ask yourself one simple question, where are those cultures now? This is not progress, this is regress. And in the 1960s, a monumental event took place at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village, New York. A gay nightclub, the Stonewall Inn, had been accused of many crimes including the prostitution of 14-year-old boys. The term chicken hawk was popular at this inn and referred to men who sought sexual encounters with male boys. If you've ever heard the term winner, winner, chicken dinner, it's referring to that very act. The police raided the Stonewall Inn on an anonymous tip. When they tried to enter the Stonewall Inn, the homosexuals in the inn fought back through stones and a riot and fire broke out. I want you to remember, remember that the movement was instigated with a rejection of civil authority. The movement was instigated with a rejection of civil authority. A year later, New York City became the first city in America to host a pride parade. Within a few years, 2,500 similar events spread across the country. In coordination with that riot and spurred on by its movement throughout the 1970s, two Harvard graduates wrote a paper which they published and eventually became a book called After the Ball. We can put that up here. After the Ball is a uh, program on how America will conquer its fear and hatred of gays in the 90s. It was written by Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. Marshall Kirk, by the way, died alone in his apartment and was found days later. He suffered with depression, loneliness, anxiety, and severe migraines. The seven-point plan from the book is very simple. It's what you've seen for the last 40 years in our country. Desensitization, that means just flood the marketplace with homosexual imaging. Endless messaging, jamming, that is a shaming of opponents, including Christians or biblical believers, accusing religious people of bigotry, portraying LGBT persons as victims, attract present, attractive presentation of LGBT people in the media, and accrue political power and corporate money. And ladies and gentlemen, they have strategically and emphatically accomplished their mission. In the 1990s, calls for same-sex unions started in Hawaii and then also in Massachusetts. And unfortunately, our home state became the first state to legalize same-sex marriage statewide. I could go into details about how the political man maneuvering made that happen, how many laws and, and, or, and, uh, and, and uh, protocols in our state house and legislature and Supreme Court were broken to make sure that that happened because they knew it was not popular and the comp and the population of the state would have voted it down, but they made several key choices and several key move movements to break protocol and get it passed by the Supreme Court. What began as Pride Day at the end of June in the 1960s ended up becoming Pride Month. President Bill Clinton issued a proclamation on June 11, 1999, 
That pride would no longer just be a single day. No, it would last for the entire month of June. Ironically, this proclamation of a month-long celebration of sexual deviancy was signed by a president who was always a fan of it himself. In the 2000s, Barack Obama ran for president for his first term, saying the following, quote, I believe marriage is the union between a man and a woman. Now, for me, as a Christian, it's a sacred union. God is in the mix. That was 2008. And three years later, when he stuck his finger in the wind and measured the political winds, he changed his mind and decided that he was going to run on a pro-gay marriage agenda. And three years into his second term, the White House was washed in the gay pride flag colors as the Supreme Court made a civil right across the land of homosexual unions. That is how we got here. And for the first time in 2015, I want you to think about the imagery here. No other flag has ever draped the White House, nor would any other flag ever drape the White House. Today, you can step on, desecrate, and burn the American flag and never face criminal prosecution. But if you harm or desecrate the pride flag, you will face the full extent of the law and be labeled a hateful bigot. This is how we got here. Now, Point number two, where are we? A self-obsessed religious idolatry. The 1960s also brought about a move to remove God from public education. Public education, which had been founded on the principles of the Judeo-Christian philosophy that we need to educate the masses. Ironically, public education also started here in Massachusetts, in Rehoboth, Massachusetts. I don't know if you knew that, but a legislator from the, from the Massachusetts State Legislature in 1657 wrote up a law called that Great Old Deluder Satan Law. The Great Old Deluder Satan Law was the first law on the books in this country to establish education as a civil right for all of our children. Public education was born in this state. The reason why they called it the Old Deluder Satan Act is because the legislator at that time knew that Satan, Satan expertly operated the, in, the, <clears throat> in the deception of the young. And so if we're going to keep our young from being deceived, we need to pass laws to make sure that they learn how to study the Bible, the truth of God's Word. In the 1700s, Harvard University was founded for what? The raising up of ministers to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ around the country. The same is true of Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth. In fact, if you read the mottos of these, co of these colleges across the Ivy Leagues, every single motto comes from the Bible. Dartmouth's, Dartmouth's motto to this day is a voice crying in the wilderness, the words of John the Baptist. Today they are a byword compared to what these, these universities have become. Institutions to re-educate and reprogram our children, not into the Christian religion, but into the religion of self-love. This is where we are. It's a self-obsessed religious ideology. And what was argued as a matter of personal privacy, that's what the argument was. Personal privacy. What does my homosexual marriage have to do with you? It will never infringe upon your rights. Those were the arguments I've been preaching and pastoring through the entire movement of the last 25 years. We only want our rights. We want to live quietly. We want personal rights and personal opportunity. And we will not step on your toes. How the tables have turned. 
which started as an argument for personal privacy has now turned into a litmus test for social acceptance and professional advancement. Step on the toes of the powerful LGBT elite in this country and you're canceled, harassed online, held back from promotion and forced to apologize. Just consider the story of the relief pitcher from the Toronto Blue Jays this week. Here's a poor guy who barely made the team, was called up from AAA. Later in life, finally, after years and years of work, he was finally called up to the big leagues to get his shot. And unfortunately, he made the fatal mistake of liking a post that questioned pride. He didn't post it himself. He didn't say, I hate homosexuals. He didn't say this whole movement is full of garbage. He just liked someone else's video, liked it. He was called back into the offices of the Toronto Blue Jays and he was told the program that he would step out onto the field of play and if he ever hoped to see the field again, he would apologize profusely and say what we've heard so many times before, I have educated myself, I have learned new things and grown to appreciate how my words may have caused harm to certain members of the community and I stand with them in support of their rights. These videos look like hostage situations, do they not? Consider the story of the Los Angeles Dodgers who disinvited a drag queen group called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a group that repeatedly mocks the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith, a group that publicly dances in streets of America around a crucifix, a sexual pole dance around a crucifix in our country. And this now is considered, according to the Los Angeles Dodgers, a civil rights movement, a bold and valuable part of the Los Angeles community. I wonder what the four million Catholics think in Los Angeles County. After disinviting them and being shamed by the powerful elites of the LGBTQ squad, the LA Dodgers reneged and reinvited the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgences and issued a statement saying as such. Countless celebrities, sports stars have to apologize for liking the wrong tweet, posting the wrong thing, or standing on God's truth on biblical marriage. Again and again and again, all of this programming picks on the weak, not the strong. They don't go after the star pitcher, they go after the relief pitcher who's barely in the major leagues. That's the definition of a bully. When you only pick out the weak members of society to shame and humiliate them. And Christian, I am asking you not to be fooled, not to be dismayed, and not to be silenced, and not to feel shamed. The devil's tactic is shame, but Jesus' tactic is boldness and courage and confidence because you know he has washed away your shame. He has made you new. He has made you holy in his name. Consequently, the American values that we now celebrate are no longer self-sacrifice or duty and service. Those values have been tossed on the bin of history. Today's American values are about self-acceptance, self-love, self-promotion, self-celebration, and affirmation. Is it, any wonder, is it any wonder when we have these new values as America that our military has a recruitment problem? The United States military is suffering a 25% decline in recruitment. 
It's going to come to the time pretty soon where we will no longer have a military to put on the field of battle. And our geopolitical en enemies want nothing more than for that to happen. We are also suffering a birthing rate collapse as young people forego marriage and a growing number of their percentage identify as LGBTQ, probably just to go along with the crowd. Our country exhibits a national health crisis, a teen suicide rate that is through the roof, and the breakdown of the nuclear family. And while most nations want nothing to do with this new American mora mor mor morality, it does not stop the federal government, particularly our president, from running from country to country to promote these values in lands where they do not want them. Ironically, the very same people who have a problem with the colonization of this country in the 1500s have no problem with colonizing other countries in the establishment of the pride doctrines of our country today. It's amazing how the tables turn so quickly when power is grabbed. But this is where we are. This is how we got here. And now let's talk about what God says. Point number three, pride ends poorly. What the world wants is for you to be silent and shamed, and what God wants is for you to be knowledgeable and changed. And today I wanna to tell you that this pride thing is the original sin. Pride is the original sin. The first sinner was not Eve. Can we give the lady a break? The first sinner was Lucifer. The original sin was self-love. And Isaiah chapter 14 epitomizes the fall of Satan. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What was he talking about? He was talking about what Isaiah specifies in chapter 14. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the morning, or son of the dawn. And some translations say morning star. We'll get to that in just a moment. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Now, every commentator, most commentators, believe that this passage is dual meaning. And many times in prophetic literature in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you have to understand that there are dual meanings to prophetic scripture. Oftentimes it is referring to a human king or a human experience or a human event in the time of the prophecy, but most often as well is referring to a cosmic event on the cosmic calendar that's beyond our history. And so Isaiah 14 is not just talking about the ancient king of Babylon, perhaps Nebuchadnezzar or one of his, uh, one of his uh, followers. Uh, it's also referring to the original king of self-glory, Lucifer. Now the scripture calls him here Daystar, son of the morning. That is a reference to Venus. The word uh, Daystar in the Latin is Lucifer. That's where we get the name Lucifer from. Lucifer in Latin means light bringer. Now Venus's star, we'll put this here up on the screen here, is the brightest star that you will see in the morning. It's down there on the bottom. Every morning and every evening you will see Venus shining brightest in the sky for about five to six months of the year. For about five to six months of the year it is invisible and five to six months of the year. It is very visible and it's always called the morning star. In the ancient world they believed there were two stars, the morning star and the evening star. And then cosmology and science found out they were the same planet and the planet's name is Venus. Now Venus has an interesting little trajectory around our planet, we'll get to that in a moment. But understand that when we discover through science and technology and telescopes, Venus is not a star, that is it is not a light producing star it is a light-reflecting planet. 
This is how God ordained Lucifer to be. And the thing about the planet Venus, which is kind of interesting, is that if you wake up in the morning early before the sun rises, you will see Venus in the east. And Venus is always the predecessor to the sun. And the amazing thing about Venus, this is just how it works out cosmologically, is Venus is never directly overhead. It's always off to the horizon, either in the morning or in the evening. And every day it rises to give precedence to the one who rises up after it, the sun who takes precedence in the sky. This was the original purpose of Lucifer, to herald the coming king, to proclaim the glories of the one who rules and reigns over the sky and over the cosmos. That was his calling, that was what he was created for, and that was his purpose. But he wanted more. He was unwilling to accept his place, and I want you to write this down in your notes, in pride, the light bearer became, or wanted to become, the light owner. Now this is why, by the way, Lucifer often uses in our day of deception stars and celebrities, people who need the spotlight, want the spotlight, seek the spotlight, and then hope to get a star on a road in Hollywood, on the sidewalk. This has been his quest from before time began. Lucifer was so desirous of glory and selfish ambition that when Jesus the Son actually showed up on the planet, if you will remember one of his first temptations to Jesus is in Matthew chapter four, verse eight, the devil took him up to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will what? Worship me. That is his heart. That has always been his heart. And that is why he uses to this day people who need the praise and approval and affirmation of people. To follow Lucifer is to follow the course of never ending lust for the love of the crowds. That is his heart. And through the fall, unfortunately, human beings are easily susceptible to its ambition. I've got three points about pride and then we're done. Letter A, pride's ambition is self-promotion. This is what Venus exhibits for us. This is what Lucifer exhibits for us. In verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend above the stars of, of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, ironically, there are five I will statements in that passage. All five of them have to do with what? Elevation. I will ascend. I will set my throne on high, on the mount of the assembly, above the height, on the most, uh, I will make myself like the most high. Every one of them going up. Exaltation. Now what's interesting about Venus is, because Venus is the second planet from our sun, its orbit around the sun is smaller than ours. This is really amazing. If you follow the trajectory of Venus, from Earth's rotation, from Earth's perspective, not from above the solar system, but from our planet, you will see that its rotation and parallax coordination with our planet operates like this. We'll put this video up on the screen. This is Venus following a trajectory on the outside, going around the sun at the same time the Earth is rotating around the sun, and you will notice that in the center of Venus's rotation around the sun, it creates a five-pointed star, and some of you are familiar with that. It is called a pentagram. Literally, Venus in the sky 
is a five-pointed star. And the pentagram has become a symbol of the occult, stars in Hollywood, the Baha'i religion, and the ancient gods, Ishtar in Babylon, and Marduk. What I'm trying to tell you is that what Scripture bears witness to is that the truth of God's Word is also written into the nature of creation. And we see the five I wills, the five points of Satan. His plan is mapped out in the cosmos through the planet Venus. This is all written into the fabric of the universe to remind us that there are greater truths that we have got to come to know if we are going to be saved. And what we have to realize about pride is that pride is not just sin, pride is demonic. It is satanic. James chapter five, chapter three, verse 14 says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. What is demonic? Selfish ambition. This is why scripture says in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Now some people will say, contrary to what I'm talking about, pastor, what pride means in this context is just confidence, self-assurance, affirmation of one's being. But I can tell you again that those all have you in the center. And you are not made to worship you. And oh, how often we do. Pride comes naturally. Self-worship comes instinctually. And every single one of us is guilty of it. Every single one, including me. And I will prove to you that you are hooked on pride. I will prove to you that you celebrate you more often than anybody else. How many of you have ever participated in a group photo? Just raise your hands if you would. Be honest now, this is no time to lie. You're in church, for heaven's sakes. And how many of you will willingly confess that the measurement of the value of that group photo is on how you look in the photo? If you look good, it's a fabulous picture. People could be vomiting next to you and you think it's just a work of art. But if you look bad, oh, that's a terrible picture. Take that down, dislike, please remove. This is the problem with the human heart. This is what we all struggle with and at the, at the, at the root of every other sin is pride. The marriage partner that breaks their vows in quest of satisfaction in the arms of another believes they deserve it. Pride. The person who steals and cheats thinks they've earned it. Pride. The person who just wants to escape and drugs and alcohol instead of dealing with their problems and taking responsibility. Pride. At the root of every other sin is the satanic origin in our human heart that apart from God we will be destined to destroy ourselves with is pride. But there came a man from God who was sent to save us from this trap and prison of pride. His name was Jesus. And he wasn't born to glorious parents or in the halls of power. He was born in a cave in Bethlehem. 
He was raised for 30 years in the backwoods wilderness of Nazareth. And when he finally showed up, he came to serve and to seek and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he said in the Garden of Gethsemane before he faced the cross, not my will, Father, but what your will be done in my life. I don't want what I want, I want what you want. And this is what Jesus came to save us from. Because letter B in your nose is simple. Pride's end is self-destruction. Pride comes before a fall. A haughty spirit before destruction. This is scripture. This is culture's blindness. What does scripture say about the king of Babylon and Lucifer in verse 15 of Isaiah chapter 14? You are brought down to Sheol, that's hell. That's the place of the dead. You wanted to go to the far reaches of the north, but God says you're going down to the far reaches of the pit. And then he says, those who see you will stare at you and ponder, they'll be shocked. They'll say, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Is this the one who was so powerful and prominent, who exhibited such excellence and glory and grace? Is this the one who destroyed whoever he wanted to destroy, overthrew cities? who did not let his prisoners go home? Isn't this one that took captive people? Now what you have to understand about Isaiah chapter 14 in the context of the text is a funeral lament. Go back up with me, it's in your notes there to verse nine. This is where Isaiah begins. He says, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. In other words, the place of the dead is stirred up to meet you, king of Babylon or Lucifer, when you come. In other words, your end is death. And then it says, it rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones, all who were kings of the nations. In other words, when Satan, when Lucifer meets his final end, the dead kings and the dead powerful people that came before him will all rise to meet him, thinking that they are going to meet somebody who is powerful and glorious. But ladies and gentlemen, death is the great end to all of that. And the one who is so glorious in life will be shamed in death. In verse 10 it says this, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. All your power and glory in this life cannot save you or protect you in the life to come. And that is true not just for Lucifer and not just for the king of Babylon, that is true for me and for you. It doesn't matter what height that you grab in this life. It doesn't matter how many people celebrate you or like you, young people. It doesn't matter how much prominence that you get in the company mother or father or single person, it doesn't matter what this world says about you. The only thing that ultimately matters is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, his son. And you can have the praise of the population and still end up in spiritual poverty in the life to come. You have become as weak as we, they say. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you and worms your covers. Do you realize how foolish and insane it is to celebrate you? Do you realize how foolish and insane it is to find affirmation in who you are? It's insanity. Because here's the reality about you, three realities about you. Number one, you will change. You don't have to write these down, but thank you for trying, and if you want to, go ahead. You will change, you are flawed, and that's why you try to change, and eventually you die. So when you're celebrating you, you're just celebrating worm food. This is the insanity of pride, but we fall for it every single day. That's why our culture has so willingly been complicit for the last 40 to 50 years to go along with this madness. 
Because inwardly, we all know that we need someone to affirm us, someone to accept us, someone to welcome us. And I have news for every homosexual or, or, or transgendered person or whoever you are in this room or whether you're not a homosexual or not, uh, you can find the praise of people and eventually realize that you can lose it just as quickly as you got it. Just look at how our country elevates celebrities and then quickly tears them down. Just ask yourself about Michael Jackson one day. Hero or hedonist? Amazing talent or pedophile? Both are said about the same person. Because people who revel in pride often need to take pride in destroying you. That's the human condition, and it comes from Satan. And all who are captive to his ideology will fall for it. Verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 14 says, all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. Let me just stop there. What is that saying? It's saying that you can still go and visit the mausoleums of great men and rulers of the past. You can go see King Tut's tomb in Egypt. We know where Marx is buried and Stalin and Lenin. And they have some modicum of revered glory and death from those who still value their contribution to humanity no matter how destructive. But notice how scripture teaches us about the end of Satan and Lucifer and all those who indulge in pride. Verse 19, but you are cast out away from your what? Great, you're not getting a burial. Satan, you're not getting a burial. You will not lie in peace or lie in state. Like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those who pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. In other words, satanic pride in Satan's future is no burial and no grave. It is the lake of fire. Which brings me back, which brings me to letter C. Pride's powerlessness is to beat death. Pride can't save you from death which is coming for you. And Lucifer is exhibit A, and all those who follow him. Verse 20 of Isaiah 14, you will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never, bore, never more be named. There will be no burial for the king of pride. Revelation 20 verse 10 tells us that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, and he will be tormented for all eternity. And every person who follows his agenda will suffer the same fate. Now, these are inconvenient truths that pastors of popular churches do not want to preach anymore. But I have a responsibility, and pastors have a responsibility to declare to people the whole counsel of God. I'm gonna tell you the bad news if you're gonna ever receive and appreciate the good news. And the bad news is that apart from Christ, you're headed for hell, to a place of everlasting torment, separated from God. What is hell? Hell is this earth minus all the goodness that God has given to it. Just like darkness is the absence of light and cold is the absence of heat, hell is the absence of God. And you don't have to go there. In spite of the heart within you that wants to celebrate you, Scripture causes us to repent and believe that Jesus Christ has modeled for us the way to repentance and truth. 
The way to life everlasting is to follow him and to trust him and to serve him. As Philippians chapter two talks about him, the very anti-Satan. We talk about anti-Christ, Jesus is the anti-Satan who in the very nature of God did not consider the equality with God something to be held onto and grasped, but emptied, who? Himself, and took on the form, not of a celebrity, but of a servant, and being formed in the likeness of men, he, became, he was found in human form, and he humbled himself. He did not glorify himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue profess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. That's salvation. That's what he did for you. He didn't glorify himself, he humbled himself so that in him you could find and receive the glory of the grace of Almighty God. And know that your life here is secure in the eternal life to come. You may be attacked, you may be vilified, you may be hated, you may be shamed. But the moment that you close your eyes for the last time, you will be welcomed into everlasting glory. Because Revelation chapter one, Verse 17, Jesus said, I am the first and the last, and I am the living one, and I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and hell. He rules and reigns not just in this life, but he rules and reigns in the next life. And he's the one who can beat death for you. But it doesn't come with prideful arrogance and a love of self. It comes for the denial of self, the humbling of self, and the abdication of your rule and reign in life to the rule and reign of God Almighty so that you know that you are his and he is yours and you belong to him. At the end of the day, the final thing that I wanna share with you is simply this, the humble King Jesus is the only king able to defeat death and bring you everlasting life. Do not be ashamed, Christians, to believe what you believe. And if you're here today and you're insulted by what I've said, consider the source of your insult Consider the underlayment of pride with which you stand against the authority of God's word. You don't stand against me, you stand against him. You don't have to be accountable to me, you have to be accountable to him. And scripture says that we all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will you say when you face God? Will you say, I listen to the world and the loudest people on a planet? Or will you say, I listen to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who you gave to die in my stead, who bore my punishment so that I can receive his peace? He doesn't just save you in this life, he saves you in the next. And that's an opportunity for every single person who's listening to me now in every single location, homosexual or straight or transgendered or liar or thief or slanderer or gossip. God can save you from the worst thing about you and bring you into glory and to stand before God's presence with everlasting shouts of joy.